We'll be absolutely, completely honest. And I think that's a massive boon for us, yeah. is that we can, and we are backed by the family on that, is we are 100% honest and open with people. That understanding of a room and each individual and working out, what do they want? Yeah. People want to be entertained. Are you not entertained? <laughs> if Russell, Russell Crowe was Scottish. Oh, I'm not gonna tell you how long, because you don't need to know. It's been a minute. <laughs> Welcome to the How You Say It podcast with myself, Graham Kilgower, a podcast that dives into the depths of understanding communication in all walks of life. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. Welcome along to the How You Say It podcast, and we are, it's a pubcast this afternoon, as I am sitting in the Athletic Arms, otherwise known as Diggers in Edinburgh, and I'm joined, well, there's no better place to be joined that by... Uh, Drinks Ambassadors. So we have Ambassador to Scotland, Jodie Buchan for Monkey Shoulder. We've got Ambassador to Scotland for Hendrix Gin. We've got Sarah Berardi and the doyen of Whiskey <laughs> Ambassadors. He's, he's royalty in these necks of the woods. It's the Scottish Whiskey Ambassador of the Year, Ambassador to Scotland for Glenfinnick, Mark Thompson. How are we doing, guys? Good. Great. I'm going to have to Google that word now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a $10 word oh, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Wow, what? Yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to talk about, and I think if, if we do, I especially sound a little bit croakier this morning, as, uh, <laughs> or this afternoon, I should say, is I, uh, I was seeing Mark in action as a whiskey ambassador at a Glenfiddich whiskey tasting last night, so apologies for anyone listening who think I sound a little bit croakier, but it was a very, very enjoyable evening. And of course, this podcast is all about communication. And as much as we would probably like to sit whilst we're having a nice drink and a dram in this lovely pub to talk about whiskies and gins and things like that, really, we're looking for how we can communicate the brands and, and, and that we work for. So, Sarah, I want to start with yourself. What do you think is a, a drinks brand ambassador or a gin brand ambassador for yourself? Um, I think like the most important role like in what an ambassador does is kind of just embodying the brand and bringing that passion into whatever they do. So kind of finding their own passion points, things they're interested in, but finding it in that brand's lens. Um, when I first joined the brand, I think the biggest piece of advice I got was don't find yourself in the brand, find the brand in you. Like don't change who you are. Like just make sure that you're finding those passion points. And then being able to do that while championing community is kind of all about what a brand ambassador should do. So being able to communicate that effectively by just being yourself, I think is kind of just trying to find that balance. Cause it's easy to get lost, I think, mm. when you take on these roles to like lose yourself in the identity of the brand. So I think that's kind of the most important part. So did, did you go out looking and say, Hendrix Gin is the brand for me? Is that, that where you went to straight away? Did you resonate with them for some reason or was it just a case of gin is your passion and and being an ambassador for a gin company was what you wanted to do. So I've been a bartender in New Orleans and in Scotland for, I'm not going to tell you how long because you don't need to know. It's been a minute. <laughs> um, but I was really lucky that when I was working in Dundee, I had a lot of people from the William Grant's team really support me and our bars and Mark kind of being the first one from the group that really kind of uplifted us and gave us a lot of opportunities. So when a role came open with William Grant and Sons, that was going to be the company I was going to work for. And I was slightly unsure if I wanted to work for a brand like Hendrix Gin. Um, and as I started to research it a bit more, like I have a degree in theater. My background is like very much in like 
doing those kind of like big performances and hosting people, especially being a bartender. And then the more I learned about Hendrix, it's just such a theatrical, weird, wacky brand. And I was like, well, I think I can just be more of myself within this brand instead of losing it. And then from meeting the distiller and doing all that stuff, I just really fell in love. So it was an easy, easy sell. I was definitely hesitant at first, but I think it's worked out. I think it's probably the only brand I could probably work for, actually. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Jodie, what about yourself? What what brought you to Monkey Shoulder? Now you're asking a question. Uh, well, we've had a conversation previously where uh, I was not a fan of whiskey full stop. Mm. Um, but I, at the same time, was a bartender. Still class myself as a bartender, I suppose. Um, and you're, you should know every product on your back bar. And you should have at least an appreciation and an understanding of it. So when there's a tasting, uh, when there's a tasting or, or an opportunity for that, you go for it. Uh, so it just so happened that we hosted uh, a monkey shoulder tasting in the bar that I used to work in at Aberdeen. And the tasting finished, and I turned to my then manager, now wife, and said, I will work for them someday. Yeah. Because it was so refreshing. They, they, the way that they spoke and the passion that they had about whiskey, but it wasn't that, you know, leather back chair type standing in, like you have to drink it in front of a fireplace type thing. It, it sort of spoke to, you know, the younger drinker, if you like, or the, young, yeah. the more um, newcomer to the, to the round. And that's kind of what grabbed me and I haven't looked back. Brilliant. Mark, you're uh, one of the more senior brand ambassadors in the room. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what is a brand ambassador then? I think Sarah touched on it really well there. Someone who embodies the brand, but I think at the, the, the core of everything we do, it's about education. Mm. Uh, irrespective of who you're talking to, whether that's a, a, a consumer, you know, someone that's actually walking into a bar or coming to a tasting like yourself last night, or the trade where we go in and, and talk to the individuals who stock our products or want to stock our products and are looking for advice on how to talk about it properly or get the, the insight, you know, the, the, the background of it. So I think, and then we do things like podcasts and we interview uh, from newspapers and magazines and it's a multifaceted role, many, many hats that you have to put on, but the overriding thing I think is just an educator. Right. Uh, you, you've got, an opportunity to tell someone about your product in whatever level of depth they need. <clears throat> and it's understanding and being able to control how you talk to that individual to give mm. them what they need and not baffle them or uh, give them too much data. Sometimes it is just a story. You know, so as an ambassador, you're just constantly, it's a performance. Right. It's, it's very in line with acting, actually. It is a performance. And the best ambassadors out there, and I'm sitting with two very good ones now, uh, are the ones that are able to adapt, read a room, read that conversation, mimic, uh, adopt, to, to create the right environment for that person to get the best out of that experience. And that doesn't have to be knowledge. That can be emotion. That can be uh, just a general feeling. Uh, I think, I think, yeah, I think these two guys are very good at it. When did you actually start getting into it? Were you always, did you start with Glenfiddich or had you been a brand ambassador before that? How, how did you get into being a brand ambassador for one of the top whiskey names in the world? It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long journey and a short story if I can make it that way. Um, I'd, I'd run bars, restaurants, hotels in Glasgow, London, Swindon. That's not the glory part. 
You never see that on a bottle of perfume, do you? <laughs> Glasgow, London, Swindon. Um, <clears throat> and I, I, you know, I managed a lot of these in the latter part of, of that part of my career. And one of the things I really got a lot from was taking the team and motivating them and, and, and seeing those results, particularly with wine. You know, a new wine would come in and I'd, have, I'd be the one who'd picked the wine, I'd be the one who'd worked with the reps that brought the wine to us, and then I'd be the one that'd take our team at 10 o'clock in the morning and say, this is the wine that we want to really promote today, and give them those tidbits, the, mm. the, the key selling skills that would help them do their job easier. And I saw that develop until I seemed to have a natural, a natural ability. I did study it for a little bit, but you know, public speaking and motivational speaking and you know, gathering a team together and saying, this is our, this is mm. our goal, let's go and get it. And so from that, uh, I'd worked with Simon Difford for a few years at Class Magazine and the world of spirits had suddenly opened up. So I shifted from wine into spirits. Mm. And I watched someone do a presentation one day to a room, it was Coca-Cola and Schweppes had actually just merged. And all their senior execs were at this conference and this individual was asked to come up and speak about it. And that was the point where I stood at the back of the room and I thought, you've completely missed this. This is a lost. You are talking like a geek to people that want to know, is it going to sell? Mm. You haven't read the room at all. And it was particularly about whiskey. So I set up a little thing called Dramatic Whiskey. And it was just as Groupon had sort of emerged in the world and Woucher and It Is On in Scotland and things like that. And so I partnered with them and created whiskey tastings um, initially once a week, then it became three times a week and then it, that was just London where I lived in London for 16 years. Uh, and it ended up being two and a half thousand people a month we were doing. Really? And Glenfiddich were one of the brands that were really supportive. I'd go to the then ambassador who was a friend of mine and I'd say, I need X amount of cases of whiskey from you in January mm -hmm. and I will guarantee I'm going to tell your brand story amongst five other brands but independently authentically uh, to tens of thousands of people this mm -hmm. year and you as an ambassador can't do that and they said yeah great and then when he moved on uh, I'd worked with Glenfiddich under contract for a couple of years covering some of his work down south and when he moved on the role came available and Glenfiddich approached me and said, would you like to do this full time? Being a director of my own company, looking at the offer and pensions and healthcare and things, <laughs> and things which I hadn't really thought about as a director of my own company. I was yeah. like, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> so it's been 10 years now. 10 years, wow, yeah. So Sarah, with yourself then, we're, we've obviously got the two guys that are into the whiskey, but you're in with Hendrix with the gin. How different do you see trying to tell a story about gin or is it easier to tell a story just about spirit or do you really hone in on, on the gin story? Because whiskey's got this, whiskey's got this great background, mm -hmm. it's got this great story behind it and things like that, whereas, naively for myself, what's the story behind gin and how do you get that to people to try and encourage them to, to buy into it? I'm like very lucky in the sense that, and what I think is a big passion point for me behind Hendrix is that it's this brand that just like didn't come out from anywhere. It's not something that got really big and a celebrity endorsed it and then someone purchased it. It's something that was created by the William Grant family itself and they mm -hmm. kind of like built that backbone and made the brand what it is today. 
And that's just really amazing for me to be able to go to these places and be like, no, this is something that like the Grant family made and we've kind of brought it to this point. And the story of gin is a little bit, it's kind of all, gin history is kind of the same for pretty much everybody until like the late 80s, really. Um, So when it gets to that point, obviously we can add other different points to it and I can start talking more about the family and more about what kind of differentiates us. You can kind of think the modern gin renaissance down to three brands, Hendrix being one of them. So it's really easy for me to connect with people in that way. But I'm also quite lucky in the sense that Hendrix is a great product, but it has this really creative kind of brand story behind Mm -hmm. it in marketing. So it's really easy to engage with even the biggest skeptics on a category like gin to get them really involved or people who maybe really only care about whiskey and don't really care about gin. Well, it's easy for me to throw in the knowledge that, you know, we're from the same company as Monkey Shoulder, Glenfiddich and Belvani and kind of tie those things in. And it's really interesting kind of traveling all around, especially in Scotland and having conversations with people who had no idea we are from the same group but it's just amazing to see what people are interested in connecting in and kind of building on what Mark just said I feel like in this role in particular as an ambassador you have to be a a pocket knife of a human because like you don't know if you're going to give a training or a talk in a pub or if you're going to be in a five-star hotel or if you're going to be I've given talks on a boat and like with a beverage cart on a moving tour bus. You just never know what's going to be thrown at you. So being able to, in that moment, you never know who's going to be in the room. And you have to instantly know like how you're going to engage with them and what they're enjoying or not. And it's nice to be able to have so many different tools in the arsenal to pull out. But, yeah, yeah, I play the William Grant card real hard. Does that that make a difference, do you think? Because, I mean, I'll be honest with you, up until I'd done a bit of research, I had no idea that the connection between... and that without just speaking about it and again be careful not to just dive into whiskey and gin chat but Glenfiddich's one of my fav- favourite brands of whiskey and Hendrix is one of my favourite brands of gin and suddenly like a penny dropped this morning when I was doing a little bit of research before yeah. we came in I was like wow like, is there a coincidence there or is it just I think, I think a lot of people actually and, and I'll maybe speak for the other two as well here but <clears throat> 90% of people that drink have no idea about the drink and, yeah. and quite a lot of them don't actually care. There's a small percentage that do uh, and that makes it really interesting because as you stand up and speak to a room you can very quickly identify those in that room who are keen to learn, who are mm-hmm. actually researching and want to know more about what they're consuming and those that are actually have an opinion and were just went along because it was a cheap ticket or they like the brand or they like gin and that inspires them to go and sit in a room with five friends as a night out yeah uh it's been a long time since i've had to ask people leave a tasting and i can remember it quite clearly it was five or six a group of six guys had walked into one of my tastings and it was dramatic whiskey and we're just there to get pissed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the other 20 people in the room were there to... Yeah, and, you know, within about five minutes, they just... You could see them. You put the whiskey down, and you've got other people to serve, and they've already nosed it and thrown it back. Yeah, yeah. And I just asked them to leave straight away. They're like, we've paid for this. I said, I'll refund you. Yeah. You know, and it's the only time. There's sometimes you get groups where you're like, can you... Would you mind being a little bit quieter? Mm-hmm. Because I'm trying to talk, and these individuals here are here to listen and learn but most people actually if you said to them tell me where Hendrix is made no idea no. it's a no Scottish idea. brand yeah you know, it's a Scottish brand and yet they'll, they'll have loyalty to another brand which is made in 
you know, the East End of London, which makes 20 of the biggest brands you can ever name. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and you know, for us, that's a real ace in our sleeve. Mm. We're able to say we're family owned. These are the places that we built and we still own them and we produce spirit from there and each distillery, whether it be gin or whiskey or grain whiskey, single malt, they belong to us and we've created them to make the best that we possibly could. Yeah. That's a great thing to have in your back pocket. So if someone challenges you and you're stuck in a corner and you're trying to educate someone, mm-hmm. you could go like, listen, look, we could take everything that you think about the spirits industry or and here's here's the ace in the pack. Yeah. yeah. So it certainly helps in working shoulder having that sort of nod to the credentials. Because you, a lot of people don't know obviously what the brand is, or they, they, at some point last night we had people thinking that it was a, a bourbon. I, I yeah. did. Yeah, there you go. I, I thought that when it came out, whenever and, it was, and that's to do with marketing. That's a thing. Yeah. But when you speak to someone, and you and they, you, you will inevitably get someone who thinks that they will always know more. Yeah. But just dropping that little thing of like, I get that you maybe don't quite get what Monkey Shoulder is. However, I guarantee you will know if not have tried, Glenfiddich and Balvenie, yeah? Oh, yeah, of course. Cool. That's two of the whiskies that are in my whiskey. Yeah. Oh, and all of a sudden you see, you know, the, the, the sort of wall drops and every, someone, oh, okay, all right, cool, tell me more then. It does super help. Well, I mean, that's, that was what I was going to say about perception. Yeah. And perception is huge, and, and sometimes half of your job is probably going to have to be changing people's perception, uh, particularly if you've got, you know, sometimes there's so many different characteristics of a whiskey drinker or a gin drinker. A lot of the time, particularly for younger people, you know, it was my granny drank gin and my granddad drank whiskey. And it was the, we, we talked about this last night, it was the, the, the image of the old man in front of the fire. So Jody, I mean, for people who don't see the pictures or, or the videos of this, we were, we're sitting with two whiskey ambassadors who couldn't look anything less alike so to speak <laughs> in terms of that and in terms of like portraying image and stuff like that when you look at the the brand values of someone like monkey shoulder versus the brand values of maybe glenn Firth, they're part of the same company but are they trying to attract different or look towards encouraging different people to come in based on that sort of marketing and image i would say yes and no okay so we are looking for people to i mean we, we are definitely targeting you know, the newer drinker, the newer whiskey drinker, maybe someone who isn't uh, fully au fait with the category, uh, I think it's fair to say, but we always, or certainly I do, especially when I'm giving tastings in Scotland, is reference back to, our, to the heritage because you will always have those uh, few people in, in, the, in the room who will, they will know their stuff. And when you talk about that, they go, oh, okay. And as I say, that breaks that sort of barrier down. However, we, I don't think that we drink enough. Let me let me qualify that. We, we, we don't appreciate enough. How's that? Um, our our national spirit. Yeah. Okay. Um, especially uh, the younger generation. We were talking about it last night. You know, it's it's easier and cooler to get a vodka or a, or, or gin um, and, and mix it. And we have this old view in our head that you cannot touch that whiskey. You can't do anything with it. Do not bother with it. But unless it's a blend, then that's maybe okay. Yeah. Uh, or a blended malt. Yeah, you can you can do that. Whereas, as Mark alluded to, you know, any you walk into any bar and a proper you know bartender worth her salt. If you said I want to mix that twenty five year old in an old fashioned, should go. Sure, you're paying for it. Crack yeah. on. Enjoy your whiskey however you want. Enjoy your spirit however you want. Mm. You know, 
Enjoy it how you want. That's a big thing, isn't it? Because there's so much to be said about, oh, yeah, you, as you said, oh, it's sacrilege. Stick an ice in a whiskey. Or don't put water in it. That's silly. Some people will say, uh, and then you're suddenly looking at your whiskey, monkey shoulder, which you're actually encouraging people almost yeah. to say, this is a whiskey that's actually been made for mixing in some cases. Yeah. What I, I always mention, if, if, I, if I do find that there is a person in the room that I'm talking to that has that just, they will not let go of it. What I suggest is have a little think about the proper backstory of whiskey when it was illicit. We did not take Claric, new make, off the still and think, I cannot touch that. For three years and a day yeah. and I must put it into wood and wait for it. Jimmy McTavish was cracking into that. You know, <laughs> yeah. And he was probably mixing it because it would be like absolute gut rot. You would yeah. have to like lengthen it a little bit, you know. But we've we've done this to ourselves almost. Yeah. Um, you know, put put it up on a pedestal, which it should be, but at the same time I don't think we should be afraid mm-hmm. of you know, having fun with it. I, I totally agree. One of the things I think we're all very conscious of, certainly the three of us in this room, we've, we've built an image which suits our brands. We are probably good at what we do because we look the way we do and we act the way we do. Um, when I first started with the brand, I was quite well known for bespoke tweed suits. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you're a Hendrix investor. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. But I recently fell out of my tailor, so I've had to adjust. <laughs> quite L- a lot. Luckily, of Barber that, helped you out. Yeah, yeah. Bit. There's yeah. quite a few people help me out now. Uh, but you know, the, the, what I wouldn't do, and I, I saw it a number of times, is walk into a room wearing tartan, and I'd had people come up to me and say, "Oh, you're not in a kilt." Yeah. I was like, "No. What was that? What you expected?" Mm. Uh, and they're the, they're those dyed-in-the-wool, you know, individuals who think they have this perception of of whiskey. Oh, you're Scottish. Um, You must be wearing a kilt. I said, you know, I wore a kilt at my wedding, and that's, I think, the last time I wore it. Um, I wear trues, because I'm a keeper of the quaich, so, you know, I've got a trues outfit, and you get the option of wearing either a kilt or or trues at that. Uh, And every now and again, if it's a black tie event, I'll put my keeper outfit on, because it's a symbol of you know, kind of hanging around the industry long enough. Uh, but I think all of us strive. Th- those tweed suits would be would be brought out when I was doing high end events. Mm. It wouldn't be a kilt, but it'd be you know, you got a high end dinner with you know collectors, or you're you're opening up a bottle of thirty year old or forty year old. The tweed suits come out. Yeah. But if I'm coming to train bartenders. This is pretty much how I dress. And because what you want is you don't want to walk into, uh, you know, the black cat or the diggers wearing a tweed suit on a Tuesday afternoon to train their bartenders. Because the bartenders are sitting going, how have you anything relevant towards us? Yeah. The perception is already gathered. Yeah. You know, the shoes you've got on, the watch you're wearing, how you smell, how you look. The bartender's like, you know nothing about this. Mm. So I very often purposely will go in with tattoos out, T-shirt on, boots, jeans, and refer back to my history and my past to say, when I was 19, I was running bars. I know what it's like. I know what, you know, I know what customers can be like. Horrible most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, if you walked in the other way, and Jody's a great example because he walks in with a brand and his look and it, it's fun and you're not that you're not that I think you're funny to look at. <laughs> I mean I am, we all know. 
but it's but it's it's particular to exactly the type of consumer that we're hoping to attract. Yeah. And I couldn't be a monkey shoulder ambassador. Um, I'm t- too old for a start. <laughs> Way too old. But I, I, I just couldn't connect on the level of, the cultural level that yeah. Jody does with that, or Sarah does with gin. With a brand like Hendrix, which is you know, phenomenally quirky and uh, a weird little world that they dive down. And I would feel false at that. Yeah. So it's, I think it's really important for anybody that's, one, trying to communicate to a customer or an audience, but you know anyone that's interesting in this kind of job as well. And I think it's important to figure out how it translates in you. Like mm-hmm. before I joined the role, I was having a conversation with with Mark and a few of my friends when I was trying to figure out if it was the right move for me or not. Because you know the, the traditional idea of Hendrix is everybody's dressed as a dandy and it's this big theatrical thing. And the theater nerd in me was like, yes. But the human in me was like, I can't pull that off. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I think being able to figure out, like, how you want to communicate that win, like you said. Like, me, I have a very thick American accent, so a lot of the times when I go to places, I'm trying to make sure that when I walk in the room, I'm showing people, like, I'm approachable, I'm fun, I'm not stuck up, like, this is, like something that you can enjoy it's it's a bit more approachable as opposed to like because as soon as i open my mouth half the room's gonna roll their eyes and be like it's an american and then i have to be like okay stick with me here this is not it's not gonna be rubbish i promise i've, I've lived here seven years i'm Gar- pretty much surely local garbage not rubbish yeah. oh, wait, garbage. i'm trying man. i say we sometimes i said y'all do the other night and i was like i've made it <laughs> i'm scottish how how is that been a challenge for you then? Because I mean, again, Mark's talking about saying like, oh, you're going to be doing a whiskey tasting, so you expect someone to come head to toe in tartan like they've just walked off a, a shortbread tin, right? And then <laughs> someone you're you're saying like, this is a Hendrix gin, this is a Scottish brand, this is this, this is that, and an American turns up. Has that been a challenge for you, where you've had people being like, why are we getting told about a Scottish brand, about a Scottish drink by an American? And how have you managed to deal with that? I've had that a lot and more lately than I was expecting it to happen. But I did bartend in Scotland for like four and a half years before I joined the brand. And I think that that's quite a nice help. I also like think that when I'm, I'm the first person to like slag off like being American all the time. Yeah. I make jokes left, right, and center. And I think you have to figure out what lands with people. If I feel like people are going to, they're kind of in a jokey mood. I know if I like make like one funny comment about being American and they laugh, and I'm like, I've got them. I figured yeah. it out. Now I know for the rest of the, the training, if I keep making these jokes or comments, I'll have them in the palm of my hand and then I'll enjoy what I'm saying. I was doing a training last night in Aberdeen and it was like quiet for the first 20 minutes and I was like, this is awful and I want to go home. And then as soon as I made one of those comments, they all like melted like butter and then from that point on it was fine. But you just have to figure out how to, people are like puzzles, each training, each group is something that you have to kind of figure out. I'm lucky enough that because I've lived here for so long and I I think I'm Scottish in my brain, like Mm -hmm. I think I'm Scottish. I am Scottish. I've been here seven years. You qualify, yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Someone told me the other night you only had to live here for six days to be Scottish. I know that's a lie, but I'm going to take it. Um, so I think that like being able to have conversations like yeah. that with people kind of breaks down those walls. But it's, yeah, I think it's interesting to see how that affects things. I'm also quite lucky in the sense that like I work in a category like gin. Right. Like being a woman and communicating in gin 
is one thing, but to be a woman communicating in whiskey, obviously we're in a much better place than we are. We have been in the past few years, but like I am quite lucky that you know sometimes I am talking about a white spirit because if I were talking about a brown spirit, the job is that much harder because people are wanting to call you out even more so. I already get people calling me out in gin. Yeah, you can make gin in a day, right? Like it's all about the botanicals. Whereas like I just often think about times like about friends and colleagues and I have to work in whiskey and they have, you know, people waiting to jump on you know any anything they might miss say so. Yeah, well, I went on a tangent. Sorry. No, no, no. That's, that is an inter- I mean, the, the skepticism is an interesting one. So I, I want to speak to Jody about that. But first of all, like for yourself, you know, are, do you come across people who are maybe going to a gin tasting or who are you're, you're trying to convince about gin or this particular brand of gin? You know, you might get the person that's I've drank this type of gin this way all my life, right? This is what I like, and now you are trying to tell me not to drink or to try this one. Like how, how difficult is that and, 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 and what challenges have you had to come across to, to be able to combat that or how would you combat that? So there's like two, two interesting things about working for Hendrix Gin, especially in the gin category as a whole. So like gin's had its big renaissance, the boom, it happened. And like being in the UK, you're kind of a part of the epicenter of all of that. We're like very lucky and blessed and also cursed that like most of the gins in the world come from here. So a lot of the times when I go into trainings to talk to people, they either like already like super love Hendrix. Hendrix is one of those brands where people sometimes don't say they drink gin and tonic because they drink Hendrix and tonic, right? Yeah, so. Yeah. 50% of the time I walk into the room and people already love it and like, well, my job's here is done. Here's a gin tonic, <laughs> bye. But the other half of it is trying to kind of bring them back or educate them on why, you know, why this gin and kind of making them enjoy it again. I think that with a brand the size of Hendrix, there's a lot of misconceptions on like how big the production must be or how it's made or compromises. So just kind of trying to bring it back to those points. And that's why kind of going back to what we had just said about bringing up the fact that we are from the grants portfolio, we were made by the family. It's really nice to kind of bring those things back and saying that we're made from somewhere like we're from Gervin. We're made in Gervin. You know what I mean? Like there's it being able to hark back to those moments, make it so much more effective because the category being what it is, there's so much out there. Being able to bring back those moments of familiarity, those personal moments, those human moments help so much. And I I keep saying lucky, but like to work for a brand like Hendrix is a lot easier when you have those calls. I can't imagine working for a brand that didn't have those moments. Yeah. Jodie, yourself then, you obviously work for a a, a brand that specializes in, is a blended whiskey. Now there are people- Blended malt. Blended malt. (laughs) There are people when you speak about a blend, Whiskey drinkers, whiskey connoisseurs, yep. people who have loved the drama all their lives. Right. If you mention a blend, they'll almost spit on the floor. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm not drinking that. I've witnessed it. Yes. Now, <laughs> that is a, a real difficulty when it comes to managing that perception then. So with your uh, brand, how do you challenge people to say, no, no, that, that's what you think, but this is what we can offer you and, and, and show you it? I kind of... I crack into a toolbox uh, that I used to use when I was a bartender. Mm. And when I was training bartenders, um, especially you know, ones that were brand new, you, you, get, you do, you get stressed out, especially when someone comes up to you and asks you for a drink that you've maybe never made before in your life. You don't know that recipe. And they're like, oh, you don't know this. And that's that sort of yeah. you know, that attitude. Knowledge is power. Yeah. So the fact that, you know, I get that you maybe don't appreciate or don't have the same respect for the liquid that's in my bottle. 
But just as I was touching on earlier, you know, I get to say, well, cool, but you know Glenfiddich and you know Balvenie. You might have heard of Kinnanvi. It's a little bit of a lesser known one. You know, only the really, like, your geeky people will know about that. Mm. Oh, I know about that. Cool. Well, then you should know that it's those three single malts that are, are in my bottle. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, so like, not to be, um, you know, not to put people on the spot, but it's just, it's, it's getting that way. You need to think about what you're drinking just slightly different. Mm -hmm. um, especially for the fact that, you know, we are telling people to mix it. And then I, uh, I had a conversation with uh, someone who's at the Mark's Tasting last night um, about this. And when I said that, you know, single malt, unless it's, unless it says single cask, you're going to have a mix of a bunch of different malts. Yeah. Albeit it will just be from that one distillery. It might be multiple different ages, but the youngest one in the bottle will be what's there. You know, the, the art and the key of, of blending was, you know, it was something to be revered. Yeah. And now for some reason we've sort of, we've kind of put it as a sort of, a, oh yeah, it's a lesser thing. But, if, and then if nothing, if so all else fails, you just go, yeah, but you don't mind mixing a blend, right? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> so you <laughs> just get it, yeah. Down, I mean, to kind of like build on what Jody's saying, I think the biggest, the most important tool in communicating effectively in this role is listening. Because if you have skeptics in the room, or if you have fans, they're gonna let you know with body language or comments five minutes in. So from that point forward, it's like I've figured out who in the room I need to woo and who I have as advocates. And then the rest of that training is me working with those people to yeah. kind of flip them by the end. Yeah, but totally. the group will let you know what they want. And then you are able to kind of build on those moments. If mm. you're not capable of doing that as an ambassador, that's when the job gets a lot harder. I had a, had a great taste. Well, I said it was a great taste and nobody else said that. It was, a, 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 it was at the, um, the Piper in George Street, George Square in Glasgow. Massive whiskey club. At 60 people came along to this thing. <clears throat> and the owner, Gillian, she said, oh, they're all upstairs waiting for you. I'd set up and then I'd gone away for a quiet pint at another pub. She said, they're all upstairs waiting for you. Tough crowd. Oh, wow. And I was like, cool, <laughs> thanks, Gillian. She's like, yeah, yeah, we, we've got, yeah there's, yeah, there's 60 hard whiskey drinkers up there. Yeah. Uh, she proceeded to tell me about a last month's ambassador that came from a different company and um, set up a projector and they just said, just get out now. Just leave the <laughs> bottles, just go. Just go. And they, th they threw them out. Wow. <gasps> so I'm like, cool. <clears throat> Looking forward to this one. <laughs> and I got into the room and because it was Glasgow at that time, it was a few years ago before things like Clydeside were built, there was only really a couple of distilleries around Glasgow you could go to. And so the way I broke the room down immediately, as I walked in and I set the whiskies and I went, so I, I hear you're a tough crowd. <laughs> yeah. so let me just get an understanding of how tough you are. Who's been to Auchentoshan? No, I said, who's been to Glengoyne first, which is slightly out. Like one hand went up in the room. Mm. And I was like, wow, okay, cool. Let's make it easier for you. Who's been to Auchentoshan? And you know, maybe four hands went up in the room. And I said, fuck me. All of you are old enough to have your own bus passes. You can get to Auchentoshan for free. I said, why have you not been? Call yourself whiskey connoisseurs. And it, it brought a laugh, yeah. but it also, and it leveled the room, yeah. but it also made me the, the key speaker. Yeah. Yeah. Because actually I could say to them, well, I've been to Auchentoshan, you've not. Not yeah. that that means everything. My, my partner said one of the best things ever to an individual. I've said this a number of times. 
Uh, you know, I talk about whiskey connoisseurs. There's no ex experts out there. There's people who appreciate whiskey, but that appreciation can become really geeky, and that's not really what I get, you know, my kicks out of. I like new people that are coming to unencumbered by whatever marketing has happened in the past or what their gran or their grandpa drank. I like finding new people to just have a dram with and just yeah. enjoy it for what it is, the taste, the flavour. The provenance, the history, all that geekiness I can, I can do later on. And one of the best things I'd ever heard, we were sitting in a pub after a tasting one night and this guy had come up and he, I really just couldn't get, get him. I, there was something about him. He just wanted to be Barry Big Boss through the entire tasting. Mm. And he came up at the end and he says, out of interest, how many, and I was just sitting having a pint with my girlfriend, and, and he said, out of interest, how many distilleries in Scotland have you actually visited? And at the time, there was 127. There's more now. There's over 140 now. And I said to my, I don't know, I, I, I haven't counted them up really because it's not important to me. I, I said, but uh, let's say 30, 35. I've, and I didn't even finish. And he said, I've been to every distillery in Scotland. Every single one of them I've visited and gone on the tours. And, and, and he was almost saying, what do you know? Yeah. And I, I, I remember it so clearly. And I was kind of stunned. And it was my girlfriend who turned around to him and she just went, I've probably pissed in every public toilet in Scotland, but it doesn't make me a fucking plumber. <laughs> <laughs> and I will never forget uh, that day. I will sad. never forget that yeah. day. I can imagine Michelle saying right? that. Right? <laughs> it just... And the guy looked at her, one, because it was so clever, and also she was quite foul-mouthed, which caught him. You know, he was a gentleman, apparently. And it just made me think, you're right. Because there's two ways you approach anything. You either go down the rabbit hole and become a geek, but that doesn't mean you actually understand something. I understand whiskey. I understand what it means to someone to sit in a pub and not have to do tasting notes and just sit and have a decent dram in somewhere like the Athletic Arms Diggers or going into Scotch at Balmoral and, and having some of the best knowledgeable whiskey bartenders in, in yeah. Britain, I would say, serve you drams and make you feel welcome. None of them will force the production method down your throat because they've read you. You're in to have a night out. This guy just didn't get this. He was there to show off about how much he knew. I've got a certificate in distillation. I could sit down and tell you why one yeast strain works better than another when it hits barley in a mash. But do you want to hear that? No, not today. No. We just want to drink a beer and have a dram. And again, it's coming back to that... that, that um, that understanding of a room and each individual and working out what do they want yeah. people want to be entertained are you not entertained <laughs> if, Russell, if Russell Crowe was Scottish <laughs> but in terms of the I mean there's so much you, we, you've got a family company okay which is completely family owned and it's also one of the biggest when you look at Glenfinnick particularly Glenfinnick is a global brand but for a global brand to be just owned, you know, in a world where in whiskey, I mean, how many other family-owned distilleries are there in Scotland, roughly? Six. Right. It, well, it depends on the parameters. It's like marketing. If you say, what, what, what's the biggest whiskey in the world? Is mm -hmm. that the most consumed, the most exported, the most imported? You know, there's yeah. lots of different figures. But when it comes to, as I say, there was a lot of distilleries built sort of, post 2010 which were maybe crowdfunded so technically owned by the family but funded by something right. different okay. but if we look at a figure of saying 
distilleries built between 1830 and 2000. And I'd love for someone to correct me on this, but I think there's eight. Right. And we own four of them. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Uh, so you've got things like Springbank. Yeah. Um, you have, and it, you know, people say Glenfarclas, but the, the Grant family who owned Glenfarclas didn't build it. They bought it a few years after it was built. Um, so William Grant built Glenfiddich first. The land came up for sale behind it. He was worried because he'd already established a good name for Glenfiddich. Uh, so he bought that. That became Balvenie. Uh, we also have Kininvey, which is coming up for its 32nd year in existence right. or something like that, uh, on the same site. And then we have Gervin, which we built in 1962, 63. Uh, you know, so there's these distilleries that we have. I mean, there's four from us already. Mm. And it becomes um, quite interesting when you start to look at things that people are like, yeah, but it's, what difference does it make? It makes a massive difference. Yeah. It makes a massive difference about how you talk about things and how we as a business move in this conglomerate of whiskey distilleries. And with it being, with it being a fact, I mean, someone used the phrase last night about the family stuff. I think you'd mentioned as well, Sarah, about how easy to be able to create a connection. You're able to say, well, our brand is family, purely family owned. We're not part of a massive multi-billion pound organisation that has like has, has hoovered up different distilleries, gin companies, and own vodka companies and all these kind of things. And the guy used to phrase that, that you know, he said, um, what was it he said over there? The beef and the roast, the roast beef and Yorkshire puddings, he said, decisions can be made when you're a family company. Has it, does it create restrictions though if you have a family of tradition that can suddenly go, hmm, that, that's a parameter for us because we have had this company since 18 whatever it was and that is edging away from what my great-great-grandfather would have wanted this to be no, or is it the opposite? I, it's the absolute opposite. Mm -hmm. I think it makes... So, for instance, um, Monkey Shoulder only really came about because they saw a break in the market. They had the distilleries to, f to supply that and that was one of the real key things. I mentioned a distillery called Gervin uh, that was built as a basically a fuck you to the rest of the whiskey industry. Uh, Literally, yeah. Nineteen late nineteen fifties grants grants, which is our family blend. Uh, we wanted to advertise on television, and I know you don't want this to be a whiskey podcast. But no, 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 it's fine. Um, I will get back to some kind of and gin. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm here too. Uh, and gin, sorry. Um, so nineteen late 1950s we want to advertise grants on television and at the time we had relied on other companies producing green whiskey such as one that's just behind us here yeah. uh, in, in, in Edinburgh and the company that owned that I'm not naming anyone you see but it's, <laughs> I mean anyone can work it out the company that owned that literally turned around uh, to the family the two family members Sandy and Charles at the time and said, uh, if you advertise on television, we'll cut off your grain supply. Really? And, and, and they were like, right, wow, okay, well that would ruin our brand, okay. So they found an old munitions site in Girvan, about an hour south of Glasgow, on Ayrshire coast. Mm -hmm. And in nine months built a grain distillery. Uh, 
which was so technologically advanced at the time, the engineering was incredible. It was uh, vacuum stills and they started producing nine months later, which supplied the grain whiskey they needed to make grants. What's really interesting now is when you rock up to that distillery and stand at the gatehouse for a while, most of the trucks going in to gather whiskey to put into their blends are from the company that said in the 50s, if you do this, we'll cut off your supply. But our grain whiskey became desirable because of the technological advances. And um, so every decision we've made, I say we like I'm part of it, but I've been with them 10 years and and I work very closely with the family. Even the family members that are not part of the business anymore, I I still do a lot of charitable work for them and help uh, in different areas. So I'm constantly surrounded by this attitude of maverick uh, moves, like looking at things slightly differently, taking a risk, but it's a calculated risk. It's not a a gung-ho, gung-ho, slap it on the wall and see if it works. It comes from experience and knowledge, as Jody was saying, of saying this is, that's a risk worth taking because we've worked out how this will go. That's not, so we don't need to do it. We're not, we're not a brand. None of our brands are things that do things just for the sake of it. Wow. Because we don't have to, though. Yeah. That's like really yeah. important. It's like we're not at a point where we have to make these decisions for a certain profit or because we're feeling pressure to do so. It's very much like we do when we want and we think it's right. It's never because like, oh, we think the trend might be this way. It's very much like we act when we want and it's been thought out for quite some time, which is quite yeah. nice. How do, you, how do you see about like being... Richard, Richard Park when he was, on the sh- was on the podcast and he talked about growing the global radio brand and, and he said one of the things is like be first on base and always be ahead because in an industry like radio for example you, you're always, everyone's always said well when video came along it killed the radio and all that kind of stuff and TV, internet but radio's still there and you look at something like whiskey which is again a very traditional but then you've also mentioned like other other brands, other whiskey, other drinks, sorry, have come along. So how do you communicate that your brand and organization are at the forefront of it all the time? So things like that story about Gervin being built, you know, we're, we're ahead of it, we're on it, and that's what we'll do because we can, we can do that. How do, you, how do you think that gets communicated? I think he, all of us will do that differently yeah. because our brands demand a different level of that. Yeah. For myself, working for the oldest brand in the portfolio, I can delve back into the origins and look at all those points in history. You know, Glenfiddich releasing the first single malt, communicating that to America, talking, trying to talk in a different way about blends versus this new thing, straight malt. We didn't even use the word single malt back then, it was straight malt. Whereas Jody's product comes in to meet the demands of a brand new consumer. And the gin boom had happened, come along, Bombay probably kicked it into touch. And so Hendrix comes along in a really unique and, and different way of talking about gin and, and gathering people's interest in a slightly different way as well. So I think each of us will approach that in a different way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like we, we like Monkey being the younger out of the three brands, um, you know, we are probably the most misunderstood, but we sort of kind of use that to our advantage. Yeah. Like we last year we released Fresh Monkey, and we had to create a new category. 
because it's still made from it's made from you make whiskey but we can't call it that mm. because SWA <laughs> you know <laughs> but we use that to our advantage we create our own category because we have to and then we talk about it and then you come to a whiskey tasting whiskey quote unquote with me and I'll hand you a daiquiri made with this and people go wait what yeah that's completely that would yeah. blow, the fact that a whiskey product could be used in something a drink like a daiquiri no one would yeah. no one would expect to go there and the, and the fact that like you know a, a family business can very very quickly become so absorbed in like this was the traditions that we have yeah. someone might say that you could almost picture someone else said that would bastardise our 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 values yeah. but actually to be able to have that luxury and freedom where they're able to just say because that does communicate that the, the grand family are just pushing it to the say, advantage as well is sometimes as, as Sarah said you sit back and let others do things and you don't need to do it. Mm-mm. So you, you let them falter. And we've watched a number of, of whiskey, gin, tequila, rum brands try something, try to blow a market apart with their communication, with how they're talking to a younger generation. Sometimes it's worked. You know, the, the, the what's it they call it? The sticky cigarette? The trend, the tipping point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's been luck with a lot of people. We are not a, a lucky brand. Perhaps if we were lucky, we'd be even bigger than we were. And, and the yeah. decisions might be slightly different. But, but it's calculated. And that calculation can sometimes be sit back, let them do that. You know, I was talking last night, the oldest whiskies in the world. Yeah. That became a battle for a number of different brands for you know, five, six years ago. And it still continues today. Glenn Fiddick have never walked into that arena and, and showing their true colours, whilst I think we probably could by a long way yeah. and have the provenance to show that it's great whiskey. And that's the thing. It, it, you know, you don't just want to release the oldest whiskey in the world. You want it to be tasty at the same time. I think the the thing is as well for like a brand on Hendrix, like I feel like people probably think we've been around for like 50, 60, 70 plus years. We're not even 25. Really? Like so we're, us, yeah, yeah. We're like we're quite a young brand and in retrospect to a lot of the titans of industries yeah. that have been around for a lot longer. So it's just, I mean, kind of like going back to what I think we've all three of us have said from the start is like figuring out when you walk into a room, what's that arsenal you need to bring and what people kind of want. I think being able to drop those, I think for all of us, is kind of breaking down those common misconceptions as soon as we walk in is the easiest way to just level that playing field and then just get the ball rolling from there because once everybody once you've put everything out on the table you can only kind of build up from there I think absolutely Mark you, we, we, you spoke last night about you know you've mentioned already today as well Glenfiddich is the sort of oldest brand and it's the sort of it's the it's a big big branded whiskey isn't it you can see it most places in the world you'll see Glenfiddich but one of the big challenges has been as we were talking to Jody about the blend the green bottle. Now, communication isn't just like what you're saying, also how you're saying it. It's also there's there's subtleties. Now, you, you've mentioned about how that green bottle and, and how Glenfiddich has sometimes been challenged in the sense that it's a it's a high street brand, it's a or, or a, a supermarket brand. How difficult has that been for the organisation and for people like yourself to try and get people into a room and go, this is this is what it is actually instead of. It's a, it's a really good question, actually. It's probably something that we, we haven't ever answered fully. Um, things are changing. I think the, the, the consumer's changing slowly, 
supermarkets used to have seven blended scotches on their shelves and four single malts. Now the majority of the supermarkets in the UK only have three blended scotches mm. and probably nine single malts on there. Uh, so for us, or for me, I think I might have, and I'll say this openly, I might have the hardest job between these three guys because okay. we've got the most historic brand, which are people just will not move off. And then, you know, in Scotland, because it's so ubiquitous, because it's in every corner shop, it's in every bar, it's in every supermarket. As Jody said, we take it for granted. And quite a lot of my job is re-education. Is actually saying to people, I get where you're coming from, what do you drink? I think we've changed now, and I think even with the gins as well, the category. Ten years ago, if I did a tasting, people would say, I drink X brand. That's my brand. Yeah, that's where I am, yeah, yeah. And you'd be like, cool, ah, it's great. And then you dial down into it, and actually they only actually purchase one bottle from that brand, but they are just brand loyal. Yeah. And they would have one gin in their cabinet at home. And they wouldn't have a rum. They would. It'd be OVD or Lambs or Woods. It'd be something like along those lines, right? And there'd be a bottle of port and a sherry Harvey's Bristol Cream from the 1980s, which is still in decanter <laughs> on the sideboard, uh, which probably shouldn't have even been drunk in 1980. But it's, it's still there getting trolled. And that was their drinks cabinet. Yeah. Now I think we've got people, because of things like whiskey tastings, podcasts, different types of marketing, bartender education, people's scope. My dad's not a whiskey drinker. My grandfather was a whiskey drinker. He got me into whiskey. He didn't know it. I stole it from him. <laughs> uh, and my dad's not a big whiskey drinker, but he's a gin guy. And he used to have two brands of gin in his cabinet all the time. Now you've got my dad's house. He's got nine or ten gins yeah, kicking right. around. Hendrix is featured quite strongly in my dad's cabinet, just so you know. So. I'm not mad about it, thank you. Um, and I think, that's a, I think if you look across the UK, that's, that's the change that's coming. It's, it's not going... I don't care how good your marketing is, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a generational thing. Yeah. To put another analogy on it, Edinburgh is putting lots of cycle lanes in just now. And I said to a taxi driver who was raging about it, you know, I bloody cycle lanes. And, then, and I said to him, I was in Amsterdam two weeks ago, and Amsterdam, I think, only brought in the cycle lanes in the 80s or 60s or some, some period. They haven't always had them. We no. just assume that they always have. And I said, the difference here is that we are trying to create a cycling culture around this city where 90% of the people who move around this city, car is king. And that's not going to change. Yeah. If you see a cycle lane coming in a, and a car lane narrowing, you're going to be affronted by that. So it takes a generational shift. I said to the taxi driver, it's going to be 30 years before Edinburgh becomes a place where you go, as a cycling city, it's yeah. better to take a bike than it is. Plus it pisses a rain loads here. <laughs> so yeah. it doesn't so much in Amsterdam. But yeah, you know, that thing of trying to... I, I've almost given up on trying to change people's attitude because if that's what they are if they are ex-brand drinker and they always have been who am i to change that yeah i'd rather they had a good night were entertained 
enjoyed some whiskies, maybe that opens their mind up a little bit more and they're like, oh, right, okay, maybe I, I've never really been a big fan of that, but next time I might try it. I don't want everybody I speak to to be a Glenfiddich lover. That's the thing. Yeah. And, it, I, and I don't think any of us would say that. We don't, we're, not, we're not that focused. What we love is our categories. And I would rather people went away and walked into a bar and went, I'm going to try that brand because eventually they will come to Glenfiddich. Yeah, yeah, okay. Because yeah. it's good liquid. There's, you know, it's the world's most awarded single malt, so it's good liquid. So for me, I'm like, I'm only going to give you a teaser because I don't think I can change your mind tonight. Give me enough time and enough whiskey and I will. But that's not what I'm here to do. Yeah. We're, here, we're here for a, a, a good night where we can explore the brand and learn a few bits and pieces. But if they go away with that little inkling in their mind and they see that stag green triangular bottle again, they go, do you know what, actually... I'm going to give that a go tonight. That's it. And that could be six months from now or two years from now. But it happens, yeah. But it happens. It's something actually, like, we, we've obviously, the three of us have been waxing lyrical, but that I think that you come to any uh, sessions that we ever do, not like, I'm not say tasting, but any session we ever do, and hopefully what you, you'll hear as well is that is they're honest. Yeah. There is there. There's nothing of like I need to make you think that Glenfiddich is the best ever, and that Hendrix is the one and only, the B and only. We'll be absolutely, completely honest, and I think that's a massive um, boon for us. Yeah. Is that we can, and we are backed by the family on that. Is we are a hundred percent honest and open with people, and I think when you when you come to the session and you see people, they there is that little bit of maybe you know if I'm a gin connoisseur or however you want to say yourself I might know a little bit more than this person and mm. as you say you know oh they've got an American accent mm. Mm. but you you break down that wall and all of a sudden everybody relaxes and it's chill and, you know I don't I don't go I don't think any of us go into any of the training sessions being like we need to convert everybody in the room like for me the reason why I love this job the reason why I love bartending the reason why I love hospitality I like making people have a good time I love having really impactful moments with people I want everyone to be happy like I love being able to like take someone who could be having a really 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 shit day and then just maybe giving them a good gin and tonic or making them a nice cocktail or maybe just giving them a smile and knowing that they're leaving that situation a little bit better that's why I loved working in bars and now to be able to do that with a brand is really great my end goal every time I go into training isn't to try to convert everybody to be like in this like big cult it's more of like I want everyone to leave having had a great time and then I'm like cool that's my job done yeah. don't know if that needs to go to my boss I'd like to keep collecting my paycheck but uh, <laughs> my goal is to make sure everybody's having fun and most day. of our bosses don't understand what we do anyway that's so valid that's, you know. <laughs> my own partner doesn't know what I do so well, I, that. I mean on, Sarah, you mentioned right at the start about how you know you come from a theatrical background and stuff like that and of course telling a story is basically what you're trying to do as well isn't it so how important is it that you build that story and and, and how how well how hard or easy or how important do you see that to create a the great story first instead of just hitting somebody here's the stats and facts about what we do because that for a lot of people goes straight over their head but making it a, a relatable an emotional story to trigger that emotion to get people into the journey with you. I mean, I personally feel like that's essential, but like that's, I think, the storytelling background in me, like the theater in me is like, there needs to be a beginning, middle, the end. I need to take people on a journey. And I'm trying to think of that from the second they walk in and sit down, from the second they leave. It's not something that just starts when they have a cocktail in their hand. I think without that, it it's one of those things where it could just feel like any other brand. It could feel like any other night. It can be a lot more generic. I think that storytelling aspect of bringing everybody in on this journey is kind of what helps 
set us apart. I think well, from what we all do for a living, like for me, it's like that touch point, that moment. If I'm incapable of, like I can tell always within the first 10 to 15 minutes if, if they're with me or not. And yeah. there's like different tactics I'll try to do to get them involved. Like I'll be mid-training and I know no one's paying attention and then I get everybody to stand up and act like they're the stills. Or I'll make everybody like switch seats and make their own drink. But I'm trying to do stuff to get everybody into what's happening. Yeah. And every time I tell the story, it's different. I mean, the, the key facts are always the same, but like the story, the presentation, what's happening in the room is 100% guided by who's in that room. Yeah. Like it's, it's never the same. I did five trainings in the past two days and every single one was different. Like some of them was like, they were not rated PG. Like you could not record that. <laughs> like, and, and I was doing it and I was like, this is not the most professional training I've ever done in my life. And then the next one was like, I had to suit it for this different venue. And I think be able to not change our story because we stay true to what we're saying, but to be able to, I don't know if manipulate it's the right word, but cater it yeah. to the audience is the most important part. Yeah. Um, I, I know yesterday when I was mid training, I had this one rowdy group in the corner and I had to do that school teacher thing where I walked over and said to put my hands on their shoulder and like keep talking over them in the room and then they were all quiet for the rest of the day but all I had to do was just put a hand on their shoulder and they were just like oh okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need to pay attention now and like knowing those tactics that work because I think especially in our roles a lot of the time you know people have opinions they, 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 they want to jut in they want to say different things you're not here to fight the second you give anybody ammunition you've, you've lost the plot it's the whole thing is ruined. It's gonna be hard to come back. Absolutely. But instead of just like letting people sit their peace and figuring out how to how to deal with those people, I mean, working in hospitality and working in bartending is kind of the, the, uh, an excellent way of doing that. You you cut one person off once and it goes poorly, and you you never do it like that again. You know, you have to learn quickly. Like I don't want to disturb everyone else's night because one person's being unruly, right? You have yeah, to learn those communication skills really really fast, or or no one will come to your pub really. So I think. So. Storytelling in particular is, I mean, I, I do it a lot because it, it detracts from the actual facts and figures of the brand. If you can talk about other brands and build this world of imagination for most people, as long as they can envisage that in their head. I remember doing a tasting years ago uh, for an insurance company and they wanted only, it was the 25th year of this insurance company and they only wanted 25 year old whiskies. They right. wanted five of them. And I gathered these. And I remember speaking to every brand ambassador at the time and saying, I don't need to know, I know about the whiskies, so I don't need to know the production, but I want a story from each of them. And the stories I got from the ambassadors were stories you will never find on a website or in a brand Bible. And I, these were the ones that I told about each one. Yeah. Because this insurance company, none of them were actually whiskey drinkers. It was the guy who owned the insurance company was a whiskey drinker and he thought this would be a cool thing to do, amongst other bits and pieces they were doing. But I'd realized that actually no one in this room with me, and we did sort of three over the night with... Uh, 10 people in each group I said nobody that's coming in here is actually a whiskey mm -hmm. drinker but it's 25 year old whiskey you know these are very expensive bottles all of them and so each one was just a story let me wow. tell you a funny story about this particular dram whilst you're drinking it yeah yeah. Uh, and some of them were great actually I remember a couple of them they were, yeah. I mean people are going to remember those stories more than than a lot of the facts that you give, right? When I was bartending and people would tell me a story like that, that's going to be what I remember. That's going to be what I communicate then to my guest to sell that liquid. I'm not going to remember 
a lot of the details on what someone told me about that, but those stories are going to be the ones that I'll then repeat, and then that's kind of what yeah. lasts a lot longer. And let's be honest, does anyone really need to know actual production volumes in order to enjoy the whiskey or to enjoy the gin? I mean, like, I'm really nerdy like, and I want to know, but I know yeah. the general public but, does not. But we, can Google, we can Google that, you know. Yeah, that's right. it. You can and, Google it. And Jody, I mean, with, is it easier? Whiskey and, and sometimes even like gin and things like that as well, there is always a, a lot of time a personal connection. So when you're telling the story, that's one of the dogs. But <laughs> 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 when you're telling the story, do you bring it into your own personal story? Do you add your personal story to what you're doing? Because then, does it does that then make the people you're talking to more relatable? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like for me, explaining, uh, for example, we talked about well, we're doing sessions for random different places, and you have to be adaptable. You have to be the pocket knife, right? Yeah. Um, I have given training sessions in rooms like this. Um, I've also been brought down to London to host a dude on a jet boat to then make cocktails for it in, in order to understand, make him understand that Monkey Shoulder is the brand for, yeah. for you and for your company type thing. And you have to do the pivoty thing. And if you can't make that connection with someone, then you've, you've lost it. And the easiest way to do that is to just be 100% honest and give them a little bit of a story about the history of what you have with this brand. It's not a case of, oh, I just turn up and I learned a, a script and, and I'm telling you about it now and I won't go home and take a paycheck. But when I explain to someone that this was the brand that got me into whiskey yeah. or when I got married and the, uh, the, um, the officiator turned around and said, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And I turned around to bartenders and pulled a face that meant I needed a, a shot monkey. And everybody laughed. Yeah. You know, that's that's something that's it's it's not just a case of something that I work for. It's part of me. Yeah. Um, and people, people will gravitate towards that because. Well, you, you feel it. Yeah, you feel yeah. it. It's a human. It's it's a humanizing thing as opposed to it is a marketing, you know, exercise or yeah. whatever. You know. Wow. Right. Well, it's uh, on the podcast. What we usually ask is to sort of each guest to give us three key fundamentals to communication. But because we've got three people here, I'm going to stick you on the spot. So we'll start. With Sarah. What, no, what I knew one? you were going to look at me first. It's like, look at <laughs> the right, look at the right, look at the right. Give, a, give me one. What do you think in your job and what you do, what would you say is the key <sighs> fundamental in communication? I mean, I feel like this is like the generic like beauty pageant answer that I'm about to give, but like I feel like <laughs> world peace. <laughs> <laughs> Ask Miss America. Too long my um, I think the most important tool in communicating at all is, I'm going to make it one. It's kind of two, but it's just looking and listening like yeah. if you're communicating like you can feel the room you can see if people are with you if they see if people aren't with you you're going to know what they want based on what they're saying and feeding back it's just really important to be aware of your surroundings and what's happening don't go into a situation being like i have to go from a to z and there's no give or take you have to be flexible and fluid mm -hmm. with what you're going to do and the room and who you're communicating to is going to kind of give it back to you and it's really important in those moments to just be confident in yourself like even if you're not sure i mean fake it till you make it all the way 100 <laughs> percent. but like if you can go into these spaces and just listen to what they're saying like you're going to be able to 
give them exactly what they want, yeah. but you have to, at the end of the day, I mean, all of us, I said this when I interviewed for this role, I can be best friends with the brick wall, yeah. but like, you have to know what's going on around you to make sure that they enjoy it, so pay attention and listen, Brilliant. and that is my beauty pageant answer well, for we'll, this <laughs> No, that's perfect, we'll come to the, the wise sage at the end here, <laughs> get the advice, but... Jody, what about yourself? What would you be your one key fundamental in communication? Uh, you have to, for me, uh, I kind of want to do this whole, the two in one thing, but you got to inspire people. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's inspire them to, uh, you know, go out and try that category more or that particular, you know, it doesn't matter what you're, you're um, talking about and you're trying to communicate, you have to inspire the, the drive and the want to learn more mm-hmm. about it. You know, um, if, whether it's a case of I can inspire you to taste more blended malts or whiskeys or spirits in general you might hate spirits yeah but if i can inspire that because i've been open and honest and tried to educate you then fantastic brilliant okay uh scotch whiskey ambassador of the year three times <laughs> you must be good at what you're doing give us the three give us the, wisdom. T- the only person that's done it three times keeper yeah. the quake and something else and gcd and uh I, you know what I, I, i've said this a few times i think the key to good communication is to be confident in yourself. We are asked to stand up in front of people and those who are asked, and that doesn't mean to be an ambassador, if it's a TED talk, if it's a school assembly and you're brought in to do something, you've been asked to do a job and you've been asked to do that job because you have the knowledge that they require to be delivered. And so I think the, 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 the real fundamental of good communication is to have confidence in yourself that you're there to do the right job because you know more than everybody else in that room. Maybe not everyone else in that room, but you know enough in that room and they are interested to hear what you have to say. And once you have that confidence in yourself, I think it makes it a little bit easier. It can also be a burden. We've done, years ago, we did a a tour called Unwrapped. Mm -hmm where each of the ambassadors took a, a subject, mine was storytelling actually, about uh, something that wasn't about drinks and it was to talk to the bartenders about confidence and you know, storytelling and there was lots of other different things. And I remember just before I got up on stage, I was thinking, I can't do this. This is ridiculous. This is, a, this is out of my comfort zone. And then I had to sort of take myself aside and think, no, no, this is what you do on a daily basis. It's just a slightly different subject and you know it. Want to kind of give myself that chat. Still nervous going up there, but but it, it I think my delivery was was far better because of of having that little chat myself. But you got this. You know this. You know this subject. So just get it done. Brilliant. Well, I think it's time for another drink. Thank I, you very much for that, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I'm really really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks Thank so you. much, Greg. Thank, Thank you. you. Cheers.